When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, June 26th. On today's show, we'll talk about the midterm elections coming up in November and whether Silicon Valley internet companies are ready for the deluge of disinformation that is sure to accompany them, whether it's coming from Russia, Macedonia, or right here in the United States. We'll also be joined by Paige Panter, a product manager in Silicon Valley, who is also a volunteer with the Tech Workers Coalition, a group that's been active since 2014, but more recently has acted as a kind of communications hub for people who are working in the technology industry to organize to make demands of their employers. More recently, some of those employees from Amazon have demanded the company stop working with police departments to provide facial recognition technology for surveillance, which, civil rights groups argue, could lead to increased racial profiling. Employees at Microsoft also wrote a letter to the CEO, Satya Nadella, asking their employer to terminate its $19.4 million contract with ICE. We'll discuss this recent wave of tech employee activism, how it got started, and what could come down the line. All right, April, we've got a lot to talk about. Politics are back on the agenda. I feel like we still haven't fully sorted out the 2016 election. Now we have more coming. But but how are you doing this week? I know the ground is moving under our feet always, particularly in this administration. I am doing OK, all things considered. Will, are you uh, doing all right this week? It's just starting. Yeah. We don't know. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me that what it's kind of fresh starting? hell might pop up by Wednesday <laughs> Day. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it will. Uh, I'm doing fine. I'm dealing with some June gloom here in, in Santa Barbara, and I'm sure everyone around the country will be very sympathetic to, to the fact that it's 68 and cloudy here. Oh, yeah. Um, so Wear a shed sweater. a tear or two for me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we are now uh, talking about the elections again because November is not that far away, especially as quickly as time is moving these days. What's on your mind there? Well, so the 2016 elections, as we've been talking about, Almost every week, it feels like on this show, we're a pivotal moment, not only for U.S. politics, obviously, but for the Internet companies that control the flow of news and information online. Google, YouTube, Reddit, Twitter, probably Facebook most of all, have been reckoning with their role in politics and online speech Basically, ever since Trump took office, there's been this nonstop flurry of announcements around fake news and hate speech moderation, combating conspiracy theories. But two years later, we're we're headed into the midterms. And the big question is, has anything really changed? Are we really going to be any more ready uh, than, than we were in 2016? April, you've been following this story for Slate. What are some of the latest developments or what are people talking about on this front as we as we gear up for the election cycle? I mean, I guess the latest thing is that Facebook has a archive of political ads. So there's now transparency around if you see a political ad on Facebook, you're supposed to be able to see who it came from and you can look at an archive and see who they targeted it to. And the idea there is ostensibly to know if, you know, 
if it says the Kremlin did it, right, or the Internet Research Agency. I don't think it's going to be that obvious. Uh, the thing is, is that a lot of these uh, ads are funded by political action committees that have some, you know, name like, you know, American number one forever. And you have no idea uh, who, who it's actually uh, in support of. Beyond that, you know, Facebook has been over the past couple years using more independent third party fact checkers. That's something that you've written about a lot, Will. Um, they've been demoting fake news stories uh, in the news feed. Um, what else? De- demonetizing pages. There's ways of flagging, right? Yeah. Th- so y- they've basically rolled out every kind of fix that has been proposed almost for fake news. Facebook has, in fact, either tested or actually implemented, except for the fundamental issue of how Facebook works, which is that, you know, information gets shared based on what people like and react to emotionally. And, and uh, that that is the problem, I think, that underlies all the other problems. And it remains to be seen how much Facebook can change the way information flows on its platform without changing its basic structure. But one of the other things it has done is it's actually pulled back from the news altogether a little right. bit. It's, it's just showing you less news. We can't it's figure like, it out. We're just going to stop showing you news altogether. <laughs> I think that was one of the fixes, right? Right. So presumably you're seeing more uh, baby photos and vacation photos. And, and, you know, maybe that's not great for for you, but at least it's not (laughs) disastrous for democracy, I suppose. Maybe. uh, You know, what's interesting to me is is the the ways that people who kind of peddle disinformation or or misinformation. So it's not it's not just all like fake news. Some of it is stuff that we kind of have um, skewing of the facts embedded in something that looks like a real news story. I reported last week uh, on looking at kind of this conservative hub of Facebook videos that were going just in- incredibly viral last week when everybody was talking about family separation and, and people, are, of course, are still and should continue to talk about that. Um, but there were uh, videos on Facebook like from The Daily Caller and from CRTV, which is uh, the the kind of uh, television Facebook online video arm of the Conservative Review. These videos were getting like 10 million views, 2 million views. Um, you know, just going incredibly viral, you know, definitely getting more clicks than our stuff <laughs> on Slate and then uh, and from stuff on other uh, kind of, you know, vetted journalist organizations. And these videos uh, were full of uh, things that were factually incorrect. And uh, and they weren't like, you know, memes created in a Russian troll farm. These were things that looked like news videos that conservatives were using to kind of keep uh, the drumbeat going for President Trump at a time when everybody was criticizing him. So it's it's just incredibly complex to root out disinformation, is my point. Yeah, I think that these companies have been really earnest in in their attempts and, and pretty honestly pretty fair-minded overall in trying to figure out how do you address problems like Russian meddling or, or false news that pretty much everybody agrees are a problem without it being seen as, a, as a, just a partisan intervention on one side or the other. But it's just a really tough problem. And we now see it, as you reported on, we see these basically networks. I mean, it's like a media network within Facebook. Right. Or they, they exist within YouTube of conspiracy theorists or of right-wingers or, or left-wingers or whatever. And, uh, you know, Facebook says we're, we're not in the media business, but it's just the way the platform works allows these communities to flourish. So actually, that's, that's the context for a, a recent announcement from Apple this week. 
um, where Apple said that they're going to launch a new midterms site under Apple News, which is it's the app uh, on your iOS device that shows you headlines from around the web. And it's somewhat personalized, but really it's they said, we're going to do all of this with human curation. We're going to we're going to hire human editors to, to decide which are the worthy news stories that you should see. It's a really old school approach. And, and it's explicitly designed to kind of be the anti Facebook where, you know, you do have professionals deciding what what's news and what isn't as opposed to your friends and family making those decisions. Yeah. And it's interesting that they're trying to put put humans in the mix now. Um, it definitely contrasts with what other companies in Silicon Valley are doing, you know, going back to kind of the question of, of, of what's in the toolkit for what's coming up here. Google's problem definitely spans things like search and YouTube, like on YouTube where we see a ton of disinformation and right-wing videos and, and videos from all around the world that are trying to convince people in America how to vote and, and other and other elections around the world. Uh, you know, YouTube now has this kind of top shelf uh, for verified uh, news outlets at the beginning of its search. Um, you know, you, uh, Google's also been working with publishers to help kind of drive more subscriptions, to get people kind of more engaged with publications themselves. They've also been blocking ads on uh, websites that peddle disinformation, right? But, you know, this kind of all brings us to a scoop that The New York Times had on Monday night, uh, which revealed that there was a secret meeting in May at Facebook headquarters between U.S. intelligence officials and leading tech companies. Uh, I think there were eight companies there. And The Times reports that it was like Facebook and Google, Apple, Microsoft, Twitter, a lot of the big guys. And that the goal of this meeting was to share information ahead of the 28 midterms so American Internet companies can try to prevent online platforms from once again being flooded with disinformation and and foreign meddling like they were in 2016. Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, put it plainly in February earlier this year. Let's just hear what he had to say to Congress. Frankly, the United States is under attack, under attack by entities that are using cyber to penetrate virtually every major action that takes place in the United States. From U.S. businesses to the federal government to state and local governments, the United States is threatened by cyber attacks every day. And here's another clip from that same speech. Persistent and disruptive cyber operations will continue against the United States and our European allies using elections as opportunities to undermine democracy, sow discord, and undermine our values. So if we were to be playing a drinking game using the word cyber, I think we would both be on the floor right now. (laughs) But one thing is clear, and that is that uh, the threats are not going away, at least according uh, to the director of national intelligence here. But what happened at this meeting? Uh, The Times said it didn't go that well. Uh, Not a lot of information was shared. Can you kind of... uh, Walk us through that, Will. Yeah, and and I, I'm I want to be a little bit careful about taking the Times report as gospel because sure. while the Times did a great job getting this scoop, I mean this was a secret meeting that we that nobody even knew had happened. Um, the Times reported it based on three anonymous sources. We don't know who those sources are from. This could be the tech company's perspective on what happened. It could be the perspective of some disgruntled staffers in the government. You just never know exactly. But the story that they told the Times was the tech companies came and they were willing to share what they've been hearing about different threats from different countries who might be scaling up.
up a cyber operate. Uh, now I'm saying cyber. Jesus, who might be scaling up a disinformation operation uh, ahead of the 2018 midterms? But the government was not willing to share much, and apparently the atmosphere between the two was sort of tense. I guess the tech companies came away feeling that uh, they were skeptical of uh, whether the administration was really taking this all that seriously. I mean, there's there's always that question, right? With with President Trump, is he you know he has shown at every step that he doesn't really think that Russian interference is a big deal. Right. And, you know, you're right to point out that that this perspective does certainly help the tech companies if they uh, also aren't ready or if there are any sort of snafus that happen again this election season. They can say that the government really didn't, you know, collaborate with them uh, to give them the information that they needed to keep Americans and uh, kind of our information ecosystem protected uh, before the election. But uh, but but these types of meetings seems like they need to happen uh, in order for, you know, companies to be ahead of the game and to to know, you know, what's coming down the line so that they can try to stop it. I mean, it seems like when it comes to policing stuff on their platforms, it's always this kind of um, catch if you can game. Right. Because, you know, somebody posts it and then they have to take it down. It's very hard to preemptively take stuff down. Yeah, I mean, it's just a hard problem. And and again, that's where I go back to the, to the structural issues here with the way these platforms work. I mean, when the goal of your platform is to keep people as engaged in their screens for as long as you can by letting them share information with each other and prioritizing the stuff that gets shared the most, there's always going to be uh, some bias in that system towards stuff that's sensational, towards stuff that's just frankly not true. And so I think that's what Apple News is trying to fight um, to some extent with their new with their new product around the midterm elections. Um, there are other uh, sources out there that are trying to capitalize on Facebook's pullback from the news. Uh, Flipboard is one of them, where they're they're also you know speaking the language of human curation and human editors, and they're selecting stories that are actually worthwhile as opposed to just the stuff that's generating outrage among your uh, your set of political partisans or or your demographic group. Right. Well, this is something we will continue to follow uh, until November and beyond November, I'm sure. But uh, we cannot start this conversation early enough. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back to our interview with Paige Panter from the Tech Workers Coalition. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Our guest today is Paige Panter. For the last six years, Paige has worked in product management in the Silicon Valley tech industry, mostly with startups. Since 2015, she has volunteered with the Tech Workers Coalition, a coalition of workers in and around the tech industry. Most recently, the group has served as a communications and resource hub for people in the technology industry who have been organizing internally. This has been a banner month for those efforts. After thousands of employees signed a petition and dozens quit in protest of Project Maven, a program where Google was working with the Department of Defense to build AI systems for military drones, Diane Green, who leads Google Cloud, announced the company would not renew its Pentagon contract. Last week, employees from Amazon called on Jeff Bezos to stop providing its facial recognition technology to police departments and to stop providing infrastructure to companies like Palantir that partner with ICE. And Microsoft employees sent demands to their employer requesting Microsoft end its $19.4 million contract with Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, saying, as people who build the technologies that Microsoft profits from, we refuse to be complicit. Paige Panter, thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you, April. So tell us a little bit about the Tech Workers Coalition. What is it and when did it get started? Yeah, thanks so much. Well, the origin story of Tech Workers Coalition begins with a handful of full-time employees getting in the same room with subcontracted workers, cafeteria workers, security guards, janitors at some of our companies, getting to know each other, sharing about our respective workplace experiences, understanding what they were up against and why they were fighting to unionize understanding the ways that their fight for economic survival looked different from ours, but at the same time, finding common ground by talking about our struggles at work and how to make a life in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley. And so Tech Workers Coalition's earliest work um, looked like forums and conversations that brought together workers representing a diversity of Bay Area and Silicon Valley walks of life. Um, So we had what the mainstream imagines as like techies or tech workers showing up for subcontracted service workers who were in union drives and contract negotiation campaigns. For example, um, this last year, Facebook's cafeteria workers um, in South Bay unionized. So workers coming together to talk about the variety of issues we faced in our workplaces, like pay disparity, discrimination, and at the same time, being transformed by witnessing the victories of these brave workers who are fighting for things like livable wages and a voice on the job. So it wasn't long before it clicked that if we wanted to have any meaningful influence on our employers and workplaces, we should follow their lead of building worker power and collective voice. So it started, as you said, as a a forum for solidarity between full-time employees at tech companies and these contractors, and certainly unionizing some of the contractors, getting them better working conditions as part of it. At what point did it also become a way for, for tech workers across companies to come together on political causes? And was that kind of baked into the mission from the start, or is that something that has grown up over time in response to just you know, global politics and national politics? Yeah, definitely. So I would say that um, or there's three main areas we think of as far as what makes someone look for something like Tech Workers Coalition or what gets workers kind of agitated and thinking on these issues. And so the first area, like I just talked about, was we did, we've we definitely seen people want to start these conversations around the desire to improve lives and working conditions for all workers around the industry, show solidarity with workers who don't get the same 
advantages and compensation as engineers and other pampered full-time employees. And then the second big area that we've seen, and this is definitely true for me, things about your workplace experience, like being discriminated against, pay disparities, not having a voice in the job, or just burnout, or like, I don't like my manager. And then the third area has been consistently, I guess, things that like we're seeing right now, ethics of products and how um, the things that we're working on uh, intersect in a society that's increasingly being eaten alive by the internet and consumer culture. I think right now we're seeing that it's this third category that's really had the power to catalyze workers that probably were getting increasingly uneasy with their position in the system. Um, it feels less like a tipping point to me than a swelling or a sea change or like the perfect storm of the right conditions where workers, as workers, we've all had this building sense of how high the stakes are since the 2016 election against a backdrop of uncertainty of how how do we who am I and how do I navigate the world of jobs and questions like that. And then the conversation that was raised with Cambridge Analytica to this moment where if you're an Amazon engineer and you're reading a, in the ACLU talking about deep learning based image recognition product you're working on and you know very well what law enforcement could do with a database of millions of faces or you work at Microsoft and you're able to kind of tune out the ramifications of its contract with ICE until we saw the images of violence and violations of the human social contract on the border. I think the workers who are speaking out right now, for them, what was a growing unease kind of instantaneously became a collective aghastness at the ways their daily work was connected to it. Now, you've been organizing for a few years with, or not organizing, but volunteering, rather, with Tech Workers Coalition. Uh, and you said that, you know, there have been other issues beyond just the products that companies are making that have caused workers to want to come together and, and push for change internally. And one of those is the abysmal diversity numbers uh, at, at uh, Silicon Valley companies you mentioned. Um you know, it seems that there is more uh, gusto now around stopping some of the 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 work with with the government now that Trump is in office um, than around diversity stuff or, or around solidarity with, uh, you know, low paid workers that work in Silicon Valley. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious with your experience kind of over the years. Can you can you talk about what's what's changed now? Yeah, I mean, it's a, maybe sharing my personal journey would help a little bit. But yes. My own entry to Tech Workers Coalition was around 2015 when we when our work was really focused on solidarity efforts and how to show up for workers at our companies who are in union drives or contract renegotiations. Um, so at that time, I was working on this. I had been working on this HR software product that we hoped would be a big game changer for issues around systemic discrimination and bias and who gets hired at what companies for which jobs. So this is like 2014, Google's releasing data for the first time on the diversity of their workforce right. and the conversation about lack of equal representation in tech is finally getting some attention. And anyways, this diversity and inclusion product I was working on in my day-to-day -day experience had me disillusioned with software-based interventions for the kind of injustices I was seeing around my workplace and my peers' workplaces. Um, I felt like I was getting a front row seat to just like the evils of how the VC system 
works as far as who decides what products get built and deployed in the first place or what problems are valuable to solve. And then I was also like kind of starting to see the discrimination in jobs as hard coded and like baked into the system. Mm -hmm. And especially learning how little execs were really interested in trying to change that. And so that awareness was growing in me in the sense of that, that top-down interventions seemed like a lost cause. Um, and I had, I had ended up at a Rainbow Push Coalition event. This is Jesse Jackson's org, who was influential in getting Google to re- release their um, diversity data. So like in the, in the main conference hall, we're watching Intel CEO get congratulated for these like sweeping promises and lip, lip service to diversity goals that probably will never meaningfully materialize. And then moments later, in a side panel, I'm hearing from a group of service workers talking about some of the same things I was feeling, like like we can't just wait on execs to step up and make change in things that don't necessarily promote profits or the bottom line. And these workers were like, we're not waiting. The system doesn't incentivize them to ever make our lives livable, to pay us enough so we don't have to commute from Central Valley to San Jose. So we're taking matters into our own hands and we're getting organized and getting better wages and a voice on the job. And um, they introduced me to Tech Workers Coalition. So it's interesting because Silicon Valley and organized labor haven't always gone hand in hand. I think there's been a sense among a lot of people in Silicon Valley, probably especially the entrepreneurial class, that unions are an obstacle to innovation. Um, you have people like Tesla CEO Elon Musk, um, you know, who sees organized labor getting in the way of his his goal to save the world and, and uh, establish a colony on Mars and get us off carbon and all that. Um, and uh, so there's this kind of tension between the Silicon Valley idea of like move fast and break stuff or the lean startup or being agile, being mission driven, and some of the values that unions have historically stood for, like job security and stability and fair wages and that sort of thing. Is that change? I mean, is, is there, are there, are attitudes changing or, um, you know, among whom, I guess, are the attitudes changing in Silicon Valley to think that maybe unions actually do have a really important role or, or labor organization of various forms has an important role to play here? Yeah. I mean, I, and I think a lot of what you're describing is like the individualism that we just like associate with the American West and the frontier and Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and innovation. And, but I feel, I always felt like I was trained to relate to my daily community with this posture of inflation. Like, what do you do? Where do you work? And like, there's this script you you say to prove all the ways that you get sense of self and identity and importance from your work. And like, I'm so busy and I'm so stressed because my job is so important. Um, and like, we're also trained to hide any struggles or challenges that are too, problems that are too big to solve. Um, like maybe actually, I'm not sure if I'll ever be able to turn this job into what I really want because our leadership has a habit of only mentoring men or Mm -hmm. my job is just stressful and not rewarding. And, but I'm afraid to lose it because I have no idea how to get the next one. Anyways, with tech workers coalition, um, we lead with kind of that format that's says like, let's talk about what's not great about your job. And it, it, for me, it became the first authentic community I knew where we could broach those subjects transparently and vulnerably and honestly. And, um, in my experience, just exchanges where with another friend or worker or person 
when they build a certain kind of connection and authenticity when you're not just leading with what's great about it, when you also talk about what's not great about it. So we're leading with this format where we're dealing with really tough systemic injustices, but at the same time, they don't get bogged down in this usual despair that workplace complaining often does. Instead, it feels hopeful because in just a moment where we bring up one an issue with a peer or coworker, it already feels like change is possible or like we're already starting to work towards something better. So that's in essence what Tech Workers Coalition aspires to be is that clearinghouse, a resource center for workers who are trying to imagine together better workplaces, work lives, work experiences, rather than waiting on it to be handed down to us from above. One thing you mentioned there was the subject of authenticity, which is something that we don't see a lot of in Silicon Valley. We have startups that are preaching a product that doesn't exist yet that's going to do wild things and just this culture of optimism that often doesn't reflect reality. And one place where that really came into stark contrast last week was uh, with Microsoft CEO Nadella's response to criticisms the company was getting for having a contract with ICE. Now, Microsoft has a $19.4 million contract with ICE. Its employees, or some of its employees, rather, uh, wrote a letter to the company's leadership asking them to uh, to end the contract. In response, uh, Nadella said that, you know, they just provide document services and email services and and calendar services for ICE and that they're not separating families, kind of negating the fact that in order to separate families, you need a bureaucracy behind you that includes emails and documents and calendars. And he was saying that, you know, he doesn't support this policy, but then at the same time has a contract with the agency that's running it. This seems like one of those examples where we have Silicon Valley being, you know, really optimistic or saying that they stand on the right side of things. And then on the other hand, you know, profiting immensely uh, off of the the very groups that are doing the bad thing. Do you have uh, any any thoughts about how we're starting to see these um, kind of discrepancies in, in action versus words to surface in, in the typically sunny Silicon Valley tech industry? Uh, I think, I mean, I would say I think we're seeing, or I'm at least, I'm reading so many articles where workers are within Microsoft um, are speaking up and saying the old paradigm where the cloud is like pro-human at best and neutral at worst is over. And these workers are speaking up about the fact that they understand when Microsoft contracts with ICE, it's not this like off the shelf thing that's already pre-built and like, oh, they're just using our, you know, email or whatever. Workers are actually customizing that architecture to the problem set of catching and deporting immigrants. And some of those workers are immigrants themselves or come from immigrant families or have peers who immigrated. This is when workers say, I can't deny any longer the moral implications of my work. Because of my personal political views, I actually sort of cheered when I saw that tech workers were rising up to oppose contracts for killer drones or to uh, get their companies not to support ICE uh, in the midst of the the family separation policy. 
Um, but I read something today that, that challenged my bu- viewpoint. I'd be curious your thoughts on it. Um, this was an article in Defense One, which is a defense industry publication. And the author was making the case that the U.S. military and, and intelligence communities need more innovation, not less, that they've been too conservative with regard to technolo- technological change, um, that they're, they're not uh, embracing new technologies, and as a result, that the U.S. risks being outflanked in some ways by tech-savvy rivals, whether it's China or Russia, North Korea or non-state actors. So I, I totally get opposing the military-industrial complex, um, but are there also tech workers that you work with who, who have a different view of it? I mean, is there some, some disagreement within the tech community? Are there some people who feel like there's a sense of, of patriotic duty to, to work with uh, the Department of Defense or something like that? Mm. I don't know. I don't want to s- speak for other workers, but my sense or what I'm reading in these stories and hearing from friends who work within these companies is that um, it's we're just kind of getting into territory that where ethics haven't been defined yet. And so that is the primary work to be done. And in the meantime, we're also seeing that this like artificial intelligence concept is largely an overhyped marketing strategy, like so much of our industry seems to turn out to be, and that deep learning is not as intelligent as it might have been marketed as, and that like, you know, seeing things like Uber putting its self-driving car thing on hold as long as they're working through human fatalities. I think there's just a sense when you are, and again, these are this is coming from workers within these companies who are working on the products at hand. Like there's the sense that they're not foolproof. You know, they're not, it's really not that intelligent of artificial intelligence. And so that's what the um, uproar is about. And I just trust those voices since they're the ones within the, you know, product teams and organizations. So do you have any sense of what's next? I mean, I think that there are probably a lot of government contracts that are, uh, you know, signed throughout the tech industry. And these contracts are very, very lucrative. Uh, do you think that this is going to be an ongoing campaign to uh, to, to stop working with uh, the U.S. government so long as the U.S. government is engaged in things like family separation, um, you know, or uh, at least stop working with the military? Uh, do you see this as kind of reaching the pinnacle or do you think that we're actually going to see things continue? I think as far as uh, Tech Workers Coalition's vision for the future strategy, it kind of like um, is just, we. this is the strategy, which is workers talking to each other about what concerns them, finding a voice at work, working together to take action and make change. Um so I don't want to speak to whatever the uh, what's next within these different companies. I think that's going to be decided by those workers themselves and pro- probably partnering with users and other p- stakeholders in the conversation. I think whatever they uh, decide they want to get done, they will get done because we're seeing that people are kind of this moment is now and, you know, the movement is now where anytime any worker is talking to another worker and out of that partnership, improving the things they're concerned about. Um, I think that's the moment that we're in. And I would just say that if you are a worker grappling with concerns about something in in your work life or your workplace or the products you're working on, all you need to do or all you can do is start by finding one or two other concerned peers and start the conversation from there. All right, Paige Panther, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, it's, It's fascinating what you guys are working on right now. Thanks so much to the both of you. 
one last quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Will, it's tabs time. What could you not close this week? All right. I'm going to give you a double tab this week. These are two articles that came out on the same day that relate to each other. Double tab. (laughs) Double tab. One was in the San Francisco Chronicle. Let's not not trademark that. Uh, The headline was, Silicon Valley bus drivers sleep in parking lots. They may have to make way for development. And the backdrop here is the fact that service workers, bus drivers, blue-collar workers of all kinds cannot really afford to live anywhere near San Francisco, Palo Alto, Mountain View, where the tech companies are based. Um, They talked about a guy who used to commute 100 miles each way from a suburb of Sacramento. He solved this problem by starting to sleep in a San Jose parking lot four nights a week. This was uh, sanctioned by the Santa Clara Valley Transportation Authority for a while, uh, but now it's not going to happen because of course, they have to build something on that parking lot. Um, it's part of the big building boom that is partly meant to address the housing crisis, um, although it's questionable how well it's doing that. The corollary article was from the New York Times. Uh, this is also June 25th. The headline is, San Francisco restaurants can't afford waiters, so they're putting diners to work. And the issue here being that, again, waiters can't afford to live anywhere near San Francisco. This makes it much more expensive for restaurants to employ them. And so some restaurants are just doing without. They're going with all sorts of innovative new uh, self-serve approaches. Um, they're having diners, even at fancy restaurants, bust their own plates at the end. Uh, it's an interesting economy that, that Silicon Valley has created where, uh, you know, the people who write the code can afford to live there, but all the people that make the actual uh, valley work, all the people that, that you know, make the, make the uh, buses run and the food gets served and prepared and all that cannot afford to live there. So we're, you know, it definitely increases the incentives for automation and robots. Um, maybe in the case of the restaurants, it's leading to some innovation, you know, necessity being the mother of that. Yeah, you know, as somebody who has worked at more restaurants than I will ever remember the names of, I'll just say that I know I couldn't afford to live in the Bay Area on a restaurant worker's salary. I can barely on a journalist's salary. Uh, And I worry that, you know, the less tech workers interface with actual people who aren't in the same industry as them and don't make as much money as them, uh, the less uh, empathy that they will have for those folks. And uh, we might see uh, the coming of automation also beget 
uh, kind of a, a sluggishness or, or kind of an inching towards conservatism um, in a way that that uh, that we might not expect in a few years' time. So we'll see how this plays out. But uh, it's very interesting to see uh, people not afford to live uh, in the Bay, who can't afford to live in the Bay Area because of its prices, uh, be changed off for automation and what that lack of interface with the diverse economic perspectives will mean for this incredibly powerful economy. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. I think even a lot of the wealthy tech workers are starting to realize that I hear a lot of talk about people moving out of San Francisco uh, just because the the system is, has become so dysfunctional with the cost of living there. Uh, all right. But April, what tab uh, could you not close this week? So I had a story from Wired by Emily Dreyfus and Izzy Lepowski entitled How a Child Moves Through a Broken Immigration System. It's a deeply reported story that I actually recommend people take the time to read because it goes through uh, the kind of process and the the kind of when a kid turns into a number and has to go into a database and, and tracking those kids down and how hard it is when they go into a private um shelter system and then the parent goes somewhere else, you know, many, many miles away. And uh, just the the mechanics of uh, moving through that system, trying to reunite uh, with loved ones and really understanding kind of the the Kafkaesque bureaucratic um, kind of uh, showdown that one has to to go through uh, in order to to, to find their family again or to, to find any family or to get out of it. Um, and so I, I recommend people uh, take take a few minutes with that story to uh, to, to kind of understand um, really the way this works. They, they must have spoken to, you know, over a dozen people to, to report this out. All right. That sounds like a really important story. I look forward to reading that one. All right, that's our show for this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show or guest suggestions, or just say hi. We want to read more of your mail on the show soon, so get those questions in if you haven't. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, And Will is at Will Arimus. Thanks again to our guest, Paige Panter. And thanks so much to everyone who has left us a comment, a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. It's those reviews and comments that allow other people to find out about the show. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at a room with a VU studio in Santa Barbara. And big thanks to Alberto Hernandez at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. Thanks to everyone that's listening. Thank, thank, thank you. We will see y'all next week.